When I did theater back in high school, my director always liked to give this speech before opening night where he would tell us, this theater is haunted, not by ghosts, not by spirits, but by shadows. Shadows of performances and actors past. Throughout that theater's lifespan and history, every performance, every actor's emotion, all that pain, all that joy, all that excitement, all that fear, all those emotions, raw energy was left behind, the theater itself becoming like a time capsule. And those shadows that were left there imprinted on those walls, those shadows look back on us now. The question was, would we do them justice as we added our shadows to the theater? With this podcast, I hope to delve deeper into that. Is a theater haunted by just shadows or memories? Or can it be possible that a theater, or even a play, might be haunted by something else? That's why, along with my partner Joe, we present what we like to call the Ghostlight Experience. Okay, well, this is... How do we start this? This Uh, Introduce ourselves, I guess. It's the beginning of a journey. I am Kevin. I am the Managing Artistic Director of the Riverbend Community Players here in Evansville, Indiana. I am Joe. I am the volunteer historian and also volunteer actor here at the Riverbend. Yeah, you've been in quite a number of shows. Quite a few, about... 14, 15 or so, something like that. And Joe has recently joined us and started going through our historical archives to look at our history and the different shows that we've done over the years. And it's really been fascinating, honestly. But that kind of leads us into what we're doing right now. Our organization was founded in 1924. And to celebrate the founding of the theater's organization, we are going to be presenting a show that has some interesting historical context. It's a play that, despite being a public domain comedy written in 1924, hasn't really been performed in, what, two decades? Pretty close to that, yeah, two decades. Because of its associated curse? I don't like that word. It's just a, it's a stigma, Kevin. Yeah. It is a lot of stories going with this play all the way back to its founding. It's talking about different things happening to the cast and the crew, some people being killed or getting sick or disappearing, crazy urban legend type of stories. Well, and yeah, and we don't know how much of this is true and how much buried in there is actual fact. And this, it's funny how this came to be because we really wanted to do something very special to celebrate our founding. And we both like things spooky. We like scary movies and things like that. I do love a good mystery. I love a good horror story. And searching the internet, we came across this play, which is not a mystery or anything thrilling at all. It's a comedy. It's a, I guess you'd call it a melodrama comedy. It's in that sense of slapstick comedies you would see like in black and white films back in the 30s and 40s, stuff like that. It's very much not what you would expect from a quote-unquote cursed play. Yeah, and it really was for its time original because a lot of shows, well, at least my limited knowledge of early 20th century plays, it didn't really, they didn't really seem to rely on like sight gags and pratfalls as much as, say, films did. And plays were the more intellectual space to go entertain yourself. This was a show that relied on the comedy of the writing, but also the actors and what they were doing on stage and kind of that slapstick humor. But 
this caught our attention because it's I'll be the first to admit, like I said, I'm more of a modern theater guy, but somehow this show slipped under the radar and given its history, I'm not quite certain how that's even possible. So it's a really weird phenomenon because I remember hearing stories briefly about this play back in like high school when I first got into theater myself because around that time was the last time this show was, as far as we know, last time this show was ever produced or attempted to be produced and that was back in 2005 which is around my freshman year i'd heard whisperings of cursed plays you hear stories about well the play we can't the shakespeare play we cannot say because we're recording in a theater with our limited recording capabilities and so we're doing our podcast in the theater because it's going to be an experience in the theater you always hear stories about different plays that have associated curses and or superstitions, and I'm not really a superstitious person, so I always just chalked it up to... I am. Okay, yeah. I mean, like, I, 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 I did don't... sports growing up, and there's a lot of superstition with sports, so, I mean, that's carried over into my theater as well. Yeah, well, and I, I, I obviously, I'm not saying the name of that Scottish play. It's by Shakespeare. Go go look we'll it up. We'll just say McBees. McBees, yes. Um, maybe when I'm not in the theater, I will record the name of that show, but. Uh, and that show will be referenced later on. So for here on out, we will simply call it McBee's. Yeah, we'll roll with that. But even in like school and college, I would hear people talk, people whisper, college kids love to get drunk and tell stories and theater kids are weird and bizarre. And so I would hear these stories, but I didn't care enough to look them up. Does that make me a terrible theater person? No, not at all. You're just not superstitious. And you're, I didn't look too much into it when I first heard about this situation that we will talk about later that happened back in 05. But I remember like friends of mine who were looking it up, they said, oh yeah, we found this theater company's MySpace page. And it was, yeah, it was dark and messed up. Of course, you can't find it nowadays because MySpace has been scrubbed since then. So you can't find half the old profiles and postings you used to be able to look up back in the day. That's the strange thing about this show. The show is called Lady Louise's Dilemma, if I'm correct. and Yes, Lady Louise's Dilemma, yes. And that was written by the playwright. He, If I'm not mistaken, he never really wrote anything else. Adam Leviathan. Let me check my notes. Yeah, no. It looks like he had written some things, but this was going to be his big break, according to what like we've looked up and what I found so far. But Did he write anything after this? No, and we'll get to that. But you had come across this play on the internet, and I got looking it up a little bit more. And with everything we're going to be going into in this podcast, I can't believe that this wasn't something that everybody talked about. But in a big city like Chicago, it's in the headlines for maybe a week, but then the next murder just takes over and it's forgotten. It's, I wish I could articulate my thought process going, like trying to dig up information on this show, because it's fallen into a whole sense of urban legend its own kind of lore of course there's as we mentioned before there's a slew of cursed plays quote unquote that people talk about in theater this one seems to have a trail from 1924 to now and we don't know what's real what's fictitious but even digging through the internet i found like a couple small snippets people telling stories about it and that made me want to dive deeper into it I had to go through a few different wormholes to find what I found. Well, and that is why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're calling it an experience. Because not only are we going to delve into the history of this play and find out 
truth versus fiction along the way by talking to experts in various fields, people that maybe know more about this than we do, because we've lined up a couple people that are willing to be interviewed to talk about it. But we're also going to be producing the show. I'm going to be directing it. We're going to be holding auditions very soon, pretty much right away, because the idea is we want to take you, the listener, on this journey with us as not only we find out more about the play, but as we work to produce it now here in 2023 and i will go ahead and say i will not be auditioning since i am a superstitious person i do not want to end up hurt on your stage or dead kevin so i will stay back here digging through my historical documents for this show and i'll help out however you need me to i love a good ghost story and i do believe in ghosts but curse plays cursed anything i don't buy it i just I, don't I'm buy just it. not i don't want to open a pandora's box but I'm all here for the journey. I want to dig up more history on this place, see if we can find out what's true from fiction. Well, and that's why I find it interesting that this particular play would be cursed. Here is the plot of Lady Louise's Dilemma as described, and it took a bit of looking to find this on the internet. They didn't have a Wikipedia page. I had to do some digging. I also found a couple of newspaper articles, but I probably don't have the information you do. I'm more or less focused on finding the details of the events that happened during this play that supposedly caused it to be cursed. You've been looking more into kind of like the trail, if you will, mm -hmm. of what happened afterwards. So sticking to what we know, here is the plot of the play as we know it. It's a lesser known play written in 1924, so almost 100 years ago, by Adam Leviathan, the, oh yep, there it is, the only play he ever completed. It's about a young upper class woman named Louisa living at home with her parents who are pressuring her into getting married and out of the house. Unfortunately, she has two potential suitors. Hijinks ensue as each gentleman caller tries more and more flamboyantly and ostentatiously to gain her attention, including sneaking into her house during the evening. Not only do the gentlemen have to impress mother and father, but they must now avoid capture and each other. With her dearest friend Rosalie and her servant Estelle assisting her, will Lady Louisa get the men out of her house before they are caught? And above all else, which suitor will Lady Louisa choose to be her future husband? Now, does that sound like a play that's going to kill somebody? No, all I'm picturing right now is Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, and Kate Hepburn chasing each other around a house. So no, it that just sound, just, it that sound, That's what I would watch. Yeah, it sounds like romance and hilarity, so I don't see how this could possibly be cursed, haunted. What? What? I don't see anything bad coming from a show like this. It obviously did. And again, it just amazes me how much news can just get buried after a period of time. This is in Chicago crime, I'm sure, was rampant in the 20s. Um, like it is now. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not much different. It never really even ran for an actual performance. It was a preview performance on Friday, January the 18th of 1924 at the Colonial Theater in Chicago. The events that night led to the play never being officially performed due to disagreements among investors, cast members, and production crew. A little historical context here, the theater was later demolished in May of 1924. A Masonic temple as well as the Oriental Theater was built on the site in 1926. 
And in 2019, the Oriental Theater, for obvious reasons, was renamed the much less offensive Nederlander Theater, which is still standing today. I think you can see Wicked there, if I'm not mistaken. For records I could find mentioned that performance was set to be this big theatrical break for the playwright, the actors, the director. There were apparently investors and reviewers that, and they used the word coerced, They'd been coerced by the director to attend the performance. But basically, there were a lot of investors there that night because of the director, Anthony Anton Ward. He was a bit eccentric. He was known by Anton by most people, but... So pretentious. Yeah, well, Anthony, not Anthony, Anthony Ward. Oh, Anthony. It says playwright Adam Leviathan and director Anthony Anton Ward had set out to prove that a comedic melodrama could be just as well attended and enjoyed as musicals of the time, and it was their hope to get a Broadway or off-Broadway run of the show. A springboard of notoriety for actors involved as well as the director who had intended to keep the original cast if it should receive enough praise and funding to move from Chicago to New York. During that preview performance, a little more context on the kind of history of the show and the characters. The play starred an actress who would later, if she did, if she did anything after that show, was not very much. And I had certainly never heard of her. And I joke that I may not know a lot about plays in the early 20th century, but I'm a theater director. I'm an, I've been an actor most of my life. I know the big name stars and I've never heard of Eleanor Stiles, known to her friends as Nora. So we'll just call her Nora. Nora Stiles played the lead role of Louisa. Let's see. That's Lady Louisa. Lady you. Louisa. Clifton Morse played Victor, one of the two suitors vying for Louisa's attention. The rest of the cast, there was a gentleman named and seeing a lot of these actors I've never heard of, and that's what drives me insane. Eugene Earle played the role of the other suitor named Vernon. Curtis Everett played her father. In the play, they were only referred to as father and mother. Imogen Hart played Louisa's friend, Rosalie. Henrietta Harris played the family servant, Estelle. And the role of mother, now I have heard this name before, the role of mother was played by Frances Lloyd, a season... The name sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah. Not a Broadway actress, but definitely somebody that did a lot of theater and a lot of theater education in her later years. Okay. The name but, sounds really familiar, though. I just... Anyway, continue. Okay. But uh, Frances Lloyd was a seasoned theater veteran and had appeared in hundreds of shows over the decade. She was well into older middle age by this point. Okay. And we're going to be bouncing back and forth to some of these names later because they will become important. Now, if we want to go deeper into the plot beyond just what, you know, the back of the script would tell us or the description tells us, the story centers around Louisa's wealthy parents pushing her to get married to get her out of the house before she becomes a spinster, which if you weren't married by the time you were 20, you were a spinster. But they also... At the ripe age of 20. <laughs> it doesn't say how old she was, but I'm assuming Nora Stiles wasn't very old. Everything I've come up with, indicated she was probably in her early 20s. But it says the parents also enforced strict rules as to when Louisa was allowed to see her potential suitors and when gentlemen callers were allowed at the house. Obviously, the play centers around two suitors. Each of the two suitors would try to impress her parents by presenting themselves as upstanding aristocrats, but would boyishly employ immature tactics to outdo one another in their attempts to win Louisa's heart. So this is like an early 2000s teen comedy, basically. Starring Melissa Joan Hart, Rachel Lee Cook, and Freddie Prince Jr. 
You have to have Freddie Prince Jr. in there. <laughs> Louisa frantically calls for Rosalie's aid and alongside the house servant Estelle, which apparently was also controversial for its time because she was a black actress, but she was not just playing a servant. Estelle was also a friend and a confidant. Oh. So like a very major role. She wasn't just a secondary. That's a big no-no. Yeah. Louisa frantically calls for Rosalie's aid along with the house servant Estelle when both men sneak into the house one night with her parents consistently wandering from room to room. Louisa, Rosalie, and Estelle must try to keep Victor and Vernon, the two suitors, from not only being seen by mother and father, but must also get them out of the house before they instigate a brawl with each other. This led to the play relying not only on wit, for humor, but also a series of physical sight gags reminiscent of the early comedic silent films, most notably starring Buster Keaton, and we just talked about that yes. earlier. That's very interesting. That This sounds more like a setup for the Three Stooges more than Buster Keaton, but <laughs> continue, please. And that's basically what we know of the plot. So what we know about that night in front of a preview audience is that according to official records, a stagehand named Basil Cox had apparently developed an infatuation with the lead actress, Nora Stiles. Creep? Um, yeah, just a little bit. I get, hear me out here. Police say one of which became a dangerous obsession that led to the events of that evening. When the police later raided his Chicago-based apartment, they found several increasingly disturbing journal entries about his love for Nora, despite her not reciprocating that love. Numerous unsent notes written to her, like he wrote them and didn't send them. Oh, Dozens of photographs and clippings of the actress and photographs of, oh God, photographs of him. Some of them, some of the photographs of Basil Cox and Nora Stiles had been crudely cut and doctored with tape to make it appear as though they were together in the same frame. Oh my God. So, yeah. The, the way you're describing it, the vibes I am getting from this is the department in the movie Seven. When the police raid that. Yeah. That's oh just, my gosh. That's, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm picturing right now. In interviews, Miss Stiles would later say that Mr. Cox had never spoken to her during the entirety of the rehearsal process of the play, let alone make any romantic advances towards her. According to her, she also never received any letters from him or knew about the existence of letters or photographs, so he never even this talked to her. This dude was a creep. Yeah, he never even talked to her. Oh my god. So at one point in the show, so it is important to note, and I had forgotten this until just right now, that... Clifton Morse, who played one of the suitors in the show, I guess had some kind of a relationship with Nora. And there's a point in the show that there was a lot happening on stage. And apparently Clifton was waiting in the stage left wing for his next entrance. According to an eyewitness account from the stage manager, Basil Cox approached Mr. Morse, assumingly to relay a message. That's what the stage manager thought. According to the stage manager, Mr. Cox appeared to be leaning in to whisper something to Mr. Morse. In reality, he produced a knife from his pocket and began to repeatedly stab him in the stomach. Yes. Yep. He kept their bodies close and his arm movement discreet. It's not to arouse suspicion, but stabbed him in a quick manner as to get as many life-threatening wounds in as possible. Mr. Morse sustained eight fatal stab wounds in total. So he went full Assassin's Creed on him is what you're telling me. Basically. Nobody knew that he had planned this. This wasn't something, according to the backstage crew, wasn't something he talked about or even hinted at. He was a very a quiet man, kept to himself. Everybody seemed to think that he was pretty nice when he did talk to them. But there were some crew backstage that said that they saw him opening a back door 
like prior to the performance or leaving it ajar. And police came to conclude that his intentions might have been to leave it open and make it look like someone came yeah, in. Yeah, somebody snuck in. Oh no. And then I guess he chases them out and saves the day. I'm not quite sure what uh, his grand How would he explain was. why the door was just left ajar? I don't blocked know. Blocked open. He wasn't, Obviously, he wasn't a genius. We're getting that. Yeah, no, and he wasn't prepared for the stage manager to see him. But after he had committed the murder, he lowered the victim to the ground gently, placing him in a sitting position in the wing facing the stage. He turned around, presumably to go clean the blood off his hands, which he tried to conceal under a large oil-stained cleaning cloth before anybody had noticed. He had no idea that... Basically, the stage manager had seen this entire exchange. The stage manager immediately ran to alert the Colonial Theater house management and authorities, and Basil, seeing him, realizing he had been caught, ran backstage to the opposing wing, knocking past several other crew members along the way. He then climbed to the stage right, first fly gallery with the length of rope he had obtained backstage as he ran, and began to fashion a crude makeshift noose. All of this happened while this show on stage continued. What? Yeah, it is at this point that the cast began to notice the crew rushing to Mr. Morse's aid offstage left. Everybody froze on stage trying to figure out what was going on. The actor's attention was then turned stage right when Mr. Cox, there's a little bit of myth here. He was seen obviously standing on the fly gallery muttering something. Some said it might have been a prayer. Some believe it was something he said in Latin. We'll get to that in a second. But basically, to everybody's horror, actors and backstage crew, I guess knowing he was going to prison, he jumped to his death, plummeting roughly 30 feet, hanging himself in full view of the cast, yet completely unnoticed by the audience. The fly gallery was 35 feet off the ground, so that would have just left his body hanging five feet off the ground this is a big this is a big theater oh my god this is a big theater and the actors the crew see this patrons interviewed later would say that despite the loud vocalizing or the loud noises from off stage they only recalled seeing the cast look frightened and confused as the curtain dropped and an impromptu intermission was taken and some stories say he said something in latin one story i dug up said that eugene earl one of the cast members knew Latin and said that he recited the phrase Feliciterre sinequeo superos acronte movobo. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but roughly translated, if I cannot move heaven, I will raise hell. I'm sorry, even for a theater person, that seems a little bit too melodramatic for no. in a moment like that. And you're going to have that. You're going to have th things that aren't true. And aren't I'm going to go ahead and say that one's probably just an urban legend. Pro he probably is, but that's what I'm hoping somebody can maybe shed some light on. Cast members would later say that once the curtain fell and the gravity of the situation set in, several of them began to scream, but their cries would fall on deaf ears because they were muffled by the heavy curtain and loud murmuring from the preview audience there that evening, which apparently was a sizable audience, but their cries for help would only be heard by those on stage and backstage. And from there, basically what we know is the director and the playwright came backstage. I'm not sure what happened with management. I'm not finding anything in my notes about the management. And basically came backstage. The situation was dealt with, but then they continued the show. They continued the show with an understudy. I guess they made an announcement after the impromptu intermission and not telling the audience what happened, but just said an understudy will be stepping in. 
Um, well, I'm glad they had an understudy, or else they had like a whole weekend of Bernie situation going on. <laughs> yeah, well, and I don't know that he does. I don't have the male understudy's name, but they said he'd be playing the role of Victor. And from that point on, everybody else, like audiences, say from that point, everything just fell apart. The play faltered and fell flat. The acting and comedy suddenly subdued. The understudy missed many of his lines. The dialogue seemed rushed, and the play just seemed to get over quickly. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, but here's the weird thing. It seems Henrietta Harris, who was the actress that played her servant and friend, said she gave the performance of a lifetime. Incensed with such rage as she was, she was still more than spectacular, even under normal circumstances. Eleanor Stiles, Nora, quit the profession of acting altogether after that night. I'm not sure what that means. Obviously, supposedly she was in a relationship with the actor. But again, we don't, I don't know that. I don't know that for a fact. That's not something I found in records or interviews. So the rumor is there was some sort of love triangle. At yeah. least in one guy's head, there was a love triangle. Yeah, and they might have been. It's not. And common for actors, especially when it looked like they had acted together in a few shows, so it isn't unusual that they form a bond or a relationship. But that's it. We know that this crime happened. It was taken care of. I don't know if it was during the second act or after the second act, but the cast went on. The director and the playwright... Whatever was said backstage, the show must, show go, must go, go on. on. I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah, especially in this kind of situation. Because here's the thing, and this is one of my biggest fears as an actor and even as a director, is what if you saw something horrible happen off stage and there's nothing you can do about it and you've been inundated with this mindset of, oh, the show must go on and the audience doesn't know, so let's just keep going. I'm going to dig more on this. Because I really feel like there's, it almost feels like there's a hole in the story. There's got to be somebody out there that has answers on this because this, there's a lot of it that's so fantastic in terms of storytelling that it almost doesn't seem believable. And I also would like to know what the hell actually happened that night. Yeah. I've got a contact and we'll reach out to him, but I put out a call. I just, I did what I always do. I put it out there and I just said, does anybody know more about this? And Reddit was where I got a hit. And this guy messaged me, and apparently this is his thing. He knows the history of this play. I mean, he's not so much into the curse or superstition, but he knows what happened. He knows night. the truth. He, he's interested. When he learned that we were doing a podcast, when he learned that we were doing the play, in the history of it, he agreed to be interviewed. So I'm going to touch base with him. Maybe we can get him on a call together. But I want to talk to him and see if he can shed some light on that. So you found your source on Reddit. Okay, this guy's on a psychotic or creepy or both or yeah but there there's your curse there there's your curse of the play is that there was a murder suicide that happened during it and yeah that's what i've got for right now in the history of it I, like i said i'm hoping he can shed more light on it and i'm curious because again i've never heard of director anton ward and i up until now never heard of playwright adam leviathan and it did say that this was his only play, so why was it his only play? Was he just that traumatized? I would be traumatized. I wouldn't want to direct much or write any more plays after that if that happened during my play. So I'm going to look up a little bit more into kind of what happened to them afterwards at a later time. But yeah, so that's what I got on the history of the play. So tell us about the supernatural aspect of this. Okay, so the... The Trail of the Urban Legend. I keep going back. I want to refer to this play as The Little Bastard 
because in terms of the curse of James Dean's car, where everywhere it went to after James Dean was killed, someone got hurt, something got damaged. Anytime where that car went, whether it was on display or something like that, something odd happened. Now that was creepy because it wasn't somebody like moving it and it was on a trailer and it like rolled off and rolled off him. and I don't know if it killed someone, but it definitely injured somebody. Definitely ran him over. Different things like that have happened. So yeah. anyway, back to the play though. It's a trail. Like I'd said from the beginning of this, we don't know what's true, what's not true. This is just what I found on the internet and the very few places I could find any information on. So after I list all these things off, if anybody out there has any idea of what actually happened during these performances, in these towns, whatever, please reach out to us. We have a Instagram that you can message, and we also have a Facebook page. Of course, it was my job to get a Gmail set up. The ghostlight experience at gmail.com. I mean, it's simple as that. Yeah. So. Okay, so, as Kevin said before, Kevin's been doing more of the research on the history of when the play was written, the first performance and whatnot. I've been mainly focusing on what happened after that night. And so that was in 1924 in Chicago. I'm really looking forward to diving into more of this as we go along with the series as well, because the play lay dormant for many years, not until resurfacing in 1945 at the Middletown Playhouse Theater in Middletown, New York. All we know about that one is that whether it was during a performance night or rehearsal, we're not sure yet, but apparently the director went psychotic and started firing a gun on the actors and whether any of them were killed or anything, I'm not sure. And then he turned the gun on himself. So another murder-suicide involved the show apparently. Now, is this fact or is this just like in the lore of... Everything on here has just been... There's only two things on here I can confirm for sure because they were considered, you know, disasters. They're everything else that I have discovered has been hearsay stories, whether they're their own urban legends or stories that have been embellished by actors passing along the story of superstition here on here out. That's all we know so far about this one. I'm going to dig more deep. And like I said, if anybody has information, please reach out to us and let us know what you know. Now, we will set up a phone number at some point that people can call and they can leave us voicemails. Or get us a Google number set up that people can call and leave us a voicemail at. Perfect. All right. So moving on from there, the play did not surface again for another 11 years. In 1956, this one we can confirm actually happened because I looked up some old newspaper clippings online. This happened in Enid, Oklahoma, and like I said, 1956, at the Enid Community Players. Turns out one night, this was during a rehearsal, a tornado came through, wiping out the theater and majority of the cast and crew, with very few survivors who actually made it to the basement of the building. So that happened? That's that, that one, for a fact, did happen, because okay. that one did have a newspaper record on it. Okay. There's a couple of these we don't have much information on. Once again, I am going to dig as deep as I can. Later on, 1963, there was a repertory theater in Shaker Heights, Ohio, that was performing the show. All we know from that one is that supposedly this rep theater was getting this show ready for performance. All of a sudden, cast members started getting sick left and right, like deathly sick to the point to where they could not perform. So they shelled the show put in one of their other shows they had on rep, ready to go. Once the actors were all feeling better, healed up, whatnot, they started to do it again. They started to get sick again. And apparently one of the lead actors vanished before opening. No trace. Okay, again, fact or... No, no, this is the one... I don't even know the name of the theater. 
Okay. All it said online was 63, a repertory theater in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Nothing from that one. That's one of the biggest mystery ones I still have to dive into. Okay. Yeah, then uh, moving on in 1980, you had the Cowtown Stockyard Theater. Cute that name, sounds fun. Oh, I know. Yes. Summerstock is what that was. Well, Summerstock is common. In it's, yeah. But yeah, the Cowtown Stockyard Theater in Fort Worth, Texas. This one we can confirm. The Cowtown Stockyard Theater was known for not only its famed Summerstock program, but also as a salute to the town's history of stockyards and livestock sales and trades and whatnot. The theater itself, the facade outside, looked like a large livestock barn with a sailor art theater on the inside. And during the lead up to the opening of this play, that barn slash theater caught on fire. Supposedly, from what we heard, story is no one survived, but there's a few people out there saying, oh no, there were some understudies who were able to make it out the back. So we don't know the full story on that one yet. Then in 1992, this is another one, much like the Ohio incident, shrouded on a lot of mystery, don't know a whole lot. All we know is that in 1992, there was a high school in Michigan that was performing the show, and one of the actors was paralyzed on stage. Really? Like for real? Yeah. Oh, shit. That's what it says. Paralyzed from the waist down. Do you think he would want to be interviewed for this? Well, I got to find out what town it was in. And like, like I said, it just says like high school in Michigan. So we're still trying to figure out where it happened. And I tried looking up newspapers online, some newspaper clippings, nothing. If something happened and this is a true story, someone try to keep it quiet. Well, and that seems to be the theme of this entire thing is the original play, the events that happened supposedly afterwards, everything seems to get buried. It seems to just, I don't want to say disappear, but it it's almost like it doesn't want to be known. known. Yeah, especially when plays are in public domain, there's always going to be some theaters somewhere doing them. And so it's not surprising that it resurfaces, but it's just so interesting. And that's why I'm so interested in it as it just these things keep happening and it just keeps it's almost like it goes away. It's like somebody just sweeps it under the rug. Actually, I'm glad that you pointed all that out because like you said, it's like this show or somebody wants the show to stay buried, not known. And all the incidents I just listed off from 1945 to 1992 I still got a lot more digging to do. It's hard to find any information on this, but I'm still going to keep working to see what I can find. However, one thing this show was not ready for was the internet age, which mm. was the last time, especially with social media, last time this show was performed, supposedly, as far as we know, the year 2005 in Eureka, California. And that's the one story we actually do have some information on. What do we know? Okay. So in 2005, we have the Grove Theater Company in Eureka, California. The company was founded in 2002. It was built and ran by freshly graduated 20-somethings. The theater thrived on being edgy, delivering shock theater with gritty original works, as well as bastardized classics. So yeah, these guys were really just trying to shock theater. Best way to describe that's what they were trying to pull off. The theater fell in the hot water during its 2004 production of Our American Cousin. For those of you who don't know, uh. Our American Cousin is the fame, in, infamous play in which Abraham Lincoln was shot during the performance by John Wilkes Booth. Well, the show was promoted as a quote-unquote new direction for the theater, which they would promise to do a straight classic play to appeal to an older audience. 
Well, the audience that evening was left in horror as they witnessed the crew recreate the sounds and images of Lincoln's assassination. Oh my god. Yeah. These oh guys my god. were borderline sick. They had live gunfire, blood splatter, and to top it all off, the theater's founder, Eric Druthers, descended from the tech booth in full booth garb, uttering the fame phrase, Sick Simper Tyrannus. That's just tacky. No. I like experimental stuff. That's why we're doing this, but that's... This is a whole different level, and it gets worse than that, because after he yelled the fame phrase that John Wilkes Booth himself said, he ran off the stage limping, as Booth did, and as he did so, the cast continued the play as if nothing had occurred. Oh my god. Yeah. They just continued as he did it. Some of them even had the fake blood splattered on them for the rest of the play and acted as if nothing happened. Oh, that is in such poor taste. Oh, yeah. Well, it cost them a little bit because due to that, Druthers ended up draining most of the theater's funds on legal fees afterwards. A lot of angry people, obviously. So he decided to salvage what they could for what would be left of the 2005 season. He decided, since they had hardly any money at all, he decided to produce two public domain plays to save on costs. The short season was aptly named The Cursed Season, quote-unquote, and it was headlined by the play we mentioned earlier, the Scottish play, a.k.a. McBee's, William Shakespeare's most famous, and Lady Louisa's Dilemma. Now, the two plays were also serving as nods to the comedy and tragedy masks, starting off with the tragedy, then using the comedy play. Right. So, McBee's was performed that October with the already grim play being filled with even more dark elements being used, such as copious amounts of fake blood and satanic imagery. With as much flack as the theater had received, the show actually was a hit with the audiences. And of course, for Eric Druthers and company to push the envelope, instead of having a curtain call at the end of the show for bows, in lieu of that, they had the entire cast and crew step on stage and yell the M-word, multiple times and almost like a cult-like chant. Okay, even I wouldn't do that. Yeah, well, obviously any theater person who knows their history of theater or even some of the most basic superstitions, you do not say the M word out loud on stage or in a theater because it does nothing but bring bad luck. Yeah. So they got a lot of backlash from some of the more local theaters in their area, obviously. because I can imagine. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful. So apparently it turns out that it was a bad omen because later that year in December, that's when they were supposed to do Lady Louise's Dilemma. Of course, we were never going to know what kind of shock the Druthers had planned for the performance as he was found dead on the stage in the early morning hours at the theater. All we know is that he was assumed to be electrocuted. I don't know if he was working on a light fixture or something happened. This part's kind of shrouded in mystery. We don't know much. But it was two weeks before opening, and with the death of him, it was the proverbial last nail in the coffin for the theater itself, because without his twisted artistic vision, the theater had lost its identity. So the doors were closed forever. So it's, like I said, we don't know what kind of shock he had in store for Lady Louisa's Dilemma. I don't know what his plans were for a comedy. Obviously, we saw what he did with our American cousin, but that's all we know. If anybody who has any connection to the Grove Theater up in Eureka, California, please feel free to reach out to us as well. I'd love to know what actually happened that night or if you have an idea of what happened that night. Okay. Oh, wait. I can't believe I had forgotten this until just right now. Apparently, according to stories, and again, we don't know this for sure, but when Basil Cox's body was finally cut down from hanging himself, supposedly... 
His corpse fell into the theater's ghost light, knocking it into the ground and shattering the bulb. But this has never been fully verified. We don't really have any name to attribute the quote to. So that's why I wanted to call this podcast what we did. You've got the, this story that really happened. But it is interesting because the ghost light is already its own superstition amongst theater workers, actors, directors, and that's already its own mythos of keep the ghost light on for the ghosts. That's why it's called that. In reality, honestly, we keep a ghost light on in the theater in case somebody's walking through a theater in the dark. They don't fall off the edge of the stage. They don't bump into something. But it does it, carry... It's almost a symbol of safety. Yes, it re- and it's literally a symbol of safety. I carry a flashlight on me at all times, a little pocket pin light, so I don't need it, but especially in older theaters, and especially theaters with very deep orchestra pits, you definitely want something that indicates the edge of the stage. But then also supposedly at the end of this, when a body's being cut down for this murder-suicide, a ghost light being shattered, but the ghost light is such a, a beacon for all things theater mythology. So that's why we picked the title and that's why we're running with it. I like to take chances. I like to see what happens. I like to test fate. I like to push myself to my limits. I've done that in roles that I've acted in. I've done that with shows that I've I've produced. And so I like to test what will happen. And so that's why I want to do this show. I want to produce it. I want to see, if anything, what's going to happen. And we're going to take all of you who are listening and subscribing to this along for the ride in audio format. Now, along the way, if pictures surface that become important, we can put them on our Instagram page for certain, our Facebook page. It's public domain, so if we want to take videos and start a YouTube channel, we can do that. But the point is to document the process as we go along, as we dig more into this mystery, and as we experience it live, hence the ghost light experience. And Kevin, auditions are coming up this coming week is that correct yep okay so it's week, gonna we're gonna have auditions and it's we're gonna fly real quickly with it it's a two-act play a lot of plays during written during that time were three acts so it's not as long as some others it's not necessarily short but it's stand- it's not hamlet yeah it's standard length of a play today so i think we can move through it pretty easily pretty quickly get the actors involved i did purchase some lob mics for myself and the actors so at some rehearsals we can document little bits and pieces along the way now granted they're not the highest quality but just for fun and just to share with our audiences and see what comes of it will we become the next victims to befall the the curse will we see some ghosts that's there's lots of people that believe in theater ghosts i do believe in theater ghosts so i'm curious to see if this ramps anything up we actually i should have mentioned this earlier we had a medium come through our theater one time yeah it was about a couple of years ago about a couple of years ago and said that we had about what six ghosts six ghosts is what she said and yeah. from different time periods our theater used to be a silent movie house too so there's at least one we know from that time period and weird things happen now and then but nothing that like nothing, nothing overly mischievous no actors being shoved downstairs or anything like that plus it's a over 100 year old building too so there's gonna be some creaks and yeah some unlikely sounds okay well so join us on this exciting if not mysterious Ooh. auditory journey here we go I'm not sure what planet is it.